Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the idea of Christ. let me say that you can find the Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth podcasts at www.inappropriateconversations.org. In iTunes and in other podcatchers, you typically find Inappropriate Conversations either in the Inspiration and Religion section or in the News and Politics section, and frankly, it probably belongs in both. Inappropriate Conversations can also be heard on Stitcher Smart Radio, the entire uh, catalog of recent episodes is there. Of course, to get the entire back catalog, the best way to do that is either to go to the website at inappropriateconversations.org and search by month, or to go to SoundCloud. SoundCloud now features clips, just select snips, of the first 20 or so inappropriate conversations. In addition to the blurb that you'll find as a description of each episode on the website, and the ability to search through by different drummer, by using the category sections, which are arranged by different drummer. The SoundCloud clips give perhaps a better view into what the oldest shows were like, and I intend to allow this to proceed upward and numerically until I get to the point where I need to delete some of the older ones to continue moving forward. So for now, the first, again, 20 inappropriate conversations on SoundCloud, where you'll find me at IC underscore Greg, have clips available. That's um, kind of an introductory sort of state of the show. I'll tell you one thing we're not going to do in this particular inappropriate conversation. Despite the title being appropriate for the content, the idea of Christ certainly works as a point of view on recent events triggered primarily by Supreme Court rulings and the aftershock of Supreme Court rulings in the first week of July. I don't know if inappropriate conversations as a podcast is going to get to that topic at all. And maybe one day I'll share why. For now, though, the only opinion being offered on those issues can be found on Facebook, on the pages for Inappropriate Conversations, perhaps even for Walk the Earth, where, again, I'm essentially sharing other people's opinion. For this time being, I'm withholding some of my own opinions. And again, maybe in the future, I'll be able to talk about why. I'll give you a hint, though. The reasons have nothing whatsoever to do with religion. And I believe if you read between the lines of this particular inappropriate conversation, I'm calling the idea of Christ, you'll get a pretty good sense of where I stand if you don't, frankly, already know. One of the things I wanted to talk about was the importance of devotional. I think probably every Christian has a notion in their head that they don't pray as often as they should, that they don't read the Bible as often as they should. On one of the recent episodes of Walk the Earth, I kind of walk through all of the inspirational and religious material that I take in, whether through reading books or blogs, or by listening to worship services or other podcasts that deal with topics related to Christianity. I feel like I do a pretty good job in that front, but one of the things I don't really do is daily devotionals. In fact, in my entire life, there's really only two authors that I've read where I can make the claim that I picked up a 365-day-a-year book, and did each one of those days. But even then, I, I wasn't all that good at doing every day exactly on the day of the week I was supposed to do it. You know, it's, 
it's hard to keep on top of some of these things on a day-by-day basis. One of them was written by Max Lucado. He's a former different drummer. And at the time I called him out as a different drummer, I think I probably mentioned that from a theology perspective, his work tends to be a little bit more on the shallow end of the pool. The other devotional that I've read through and through, cover to cover, and even have a calendar that I've retained all these years of a thought a day. So not only did I read the book from a 365 days perspective, I read the book and took notes. And that person is our different drummer, one of them, Oswald Chambers. The other different drummer this week is his wife, Gertrude. And this may be the first time I've done a husband and wife team. The only other time I can think of where I've had multiple people recognized in the same week under the heading of different drummer is probably musicians where there's more than one musician in the group. And I was naming the group as a singular entity. But this time I'm willfully and intentionally naming a husband and wife team, Oswald and Gertrude Chambers. You know, you've caught me with a good book. If in addition to having a bookmark that I'm moving steadily through uh, the spine as, as I do my reading, but if I've also begun to take notes about page numbers and specific phrases, and one of the first times I can remember doing this was with the devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. As I worked my way through the days and the uh, book organized by days of the week as a daily devotional book, I made some notes about different well, devotionals that were worth revisiting because of the impact that they had on me. In some cases, I would just note the date and the first line because the entire devotional was worth revisiting. But in other cases, I'd note the date and just the first few words so that I could find myself in the right paragraph when I reviewed later. This is really important and probably noteworthy. I think for Christians who've done daily devotional work before, sometimes the notion of there being paragraphs doesn't make a lot of sense. A lot of the daily devotional books I've seen, and the reason that I don't spend a lot of time with them, are Christianity light. They're not really that much in much detail. It might not make sense to refer to them as being in paragraph form. Here's the opening line from Oswald Chambers' biography on a website called utmost.org. Oswald Chambers has sometimes startled audiences with his vigorous thinking and his vivid expression. Even those who disagreed with what he said found his teachings difficult to dismiss and all but impossible to ignore. Often his humor drove home a sensitive point. Quote, Have we ever got into the way of letting God work? Or are we so amazingly important that we really wonder in all our nerves and ways what the Almighty does before we are up in the morning? Oswald Chambers. I'll leave his website for now, or the posthumous website, And in a minute, jump over to more of a Wikipedia explanation, because I think Wikipedia offers a pretty good vision into why I'm naming both Oswald and Gertrude at the same time. But it's interesting that I'm naming Chambers as, as a different drummer at all. The first sentence in that Wikipedia entry says this, Chambers was an early 20th century Scottish Baptist and holiness movement evangelist and teacher, best known as the author of the devotional My Utmost for His Highest. I would not consider myself to be likely to be that much in sync with a Baptist and holiness movement evangelist and teacher. And I guess if I'm citing him, it's because of the teacher side of that equation, more than the evangelist, and certainly more than the denominational influence. Just to drop a few phrases of, you know, if you were to 
pick up the book that I was reading and take a look at my bookmark and see the dates and the page numbers and the, the quotations. What was moving me when I first read this daily devotional? Here's just a few examples. From the February 21st entry, If human love does not carry a man beyond himself, it is not love. How often do we hear Christians today talking about love and meaning it in such a way that seems to be on some level totally selfish, or what I might describe as self-defensive? We define how we're willing to love others by how they can be used by us. Might be the way I'd word that. From the May 6th entry, we are not asked to believe the Bible, but to believe the one whom the Bible reveals. <laughs> I'm not a tattoo kind of person, but if I wanted to get a tattoo on my arm that I could use in word text to share with Christians in America today why they are so misguided and why their misguided approach to their religion is dangerous, it probably is this quote from Chambers. We are not asked to believe the Bible, but to believe the one whom the Bible reveals. From the uh, June 8th entry, beware of harking back to what you were once when God wants you to be something different, something more. July 2nd, discipleship means personal, passionate devotion to a person, our Lord Jesus. I would just add here, not a company, not a church, not a building, not a civic organization, not a political party. Discipleship means personal, passionate devotion to a person. Jesus. August 17th. Have I ever heard Jesus say a hard word? Has he said something personally to me? I think my challenge back to Christians would be that if you have not heard Jesus say a hard word, there is something missing in your prayer life. You have not been as convicted, to use Christianese, by the Holy Spirit as you probably should be. The last one I want to say before I get into the main topic today is... October 28th, I am not saved by believing. I realize I am saved by believing. If these words were to come out of Rob Bell's mouth today, or if he were to quote these without, you know, maybe necessarily calling out loudly the attribution in one of his books, he might get denounced as a heretic. And yet here we are with Oswald Chambers, who, from my perspective and from my, you know, narrow bit of research, is above reproach. No one has an issue with Oswald Chambers, but Chambers is here saying the same thing that Bell has said controversially. I have heard interviews, radio interviews, with Bell being basically upbraided by the Christian host of a show for saying basically this, I am not saved by believing. I realize I am saved by believing. And what a difference that can make. Why do we have the book, My Utmost for His Highest at All? Well, I guess that's a trick question. The answer is, if it weren't for Gertrude, we wouldn't have the books at all. Again, quoting Wikipedia. Chambers was stricken with appendicitis on October 17, 1917, but resisted going to a hospital on the grounds that the beds would be needed by men wounded in the long-expected Third Battle of Gaza. At this point in time, he was serving in the African theater for World War I as a chaplain. On October 29th, the surgeon performed an emergency appendectomy, but Chambers died on the 15th of November from a hemorrhage of the lungs. He was buried in Cairo with full military honors. Before he died, Chambers had proofread the manuscript of his first book, Baffled to Fight Better, the title he had taken from a favorite line by Robert Browning. 
for the remainder of her life, and at first under you know some very straightened circumstances, Chambers' widow Gertrude transcribed and published books and articles edited from the notes she had taken in shorthand during the Bible college years and elsewhere. The most successful of the 30 books was My Utmost for His Highest, published originally in 1924, a daily devotional composed of 365 selections of Chambers' talks, each about 500 words. In other words, each deserving a paragraph structure. This work has never been out of print, ever, and has been translated into 39 languages. And if I were to decide to dive into a Bible devotional book again at this point in my life, I have very little doubt which one I would revisit if I went back to one that I'd read before. It would be my utmost for his highest. And it's noteworthy that the book only exists because of the partnership represented by the marriage of the chambers. As he would speak and give messages, both uh, as a military chaplain and in a college setting, his wife was there, using her tremendous shorthand ability to transcribe his every word. And those words, long after his death, edified Christians for generation after generation, including the generation we have today. And the reason that these words found their way into my possession was because of an aunt who had, after death, sort of handed the books down to the members of her family, including my utmost for his highest, coming to me. On March 28th, in the daily devotional book that we've been discussing, Chambers says this, I may not understand what Jesus Christ says, but it is dangerous to say, therefore, that he was mistaken in what he says. And later, in the same passage, are you loyal to Jesus or loyal to your notion of him? That is the question. What I want to do today is something I've done on a couple of other occasions, so I offer it here as kind of word of fair warning. I'm going to recount a word of scripture that I shared as a lay speaker, both in church before a congregation and also in front of a lay speaking course where I was trying to get certified to enable myself to speak not just to my own congregation, where I was a member and a lay leader for many years, but to other congregations as the, as the need arose or as, frankly, as the Holy Spirit led. It's that story about giving this message before lay speaker instructors that I want to come back to at the end. But for now, I want to begin with a word of scripture and then offer just the message that I provided on that day, 2005. So the version that I'm going to share was the June 2005. This probably would have been the original presentation of this material. But let's start with the scripture. It's the book of John, John's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 17. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you were going there again? Jesus answered, 
Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I might awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken about his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to the fellow disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that the body had already been in the tomb four days. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 17. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. It may be noteworthy that in the reading of this scripture, I've italicized certain segments. I've italicized the point where the disciples asked Jesus, pretty much if he's crazy for wanting to go back to Judea after the Jews had threatened to stone him the last time he was there. Are you going there again? I've also italicized to some degree this section where Thomas, doubting Thomas as we know him today, says, let us go also so that we may die with him. But I'm italicizing those words with my voice the same way Chambers did in his devotional on that entry from the March 28th day of my utmost for his highest. This is exactly what Chambers was honing in on in that particular you know, message that day. You see, Thomas is not saying, let us go also so that we may die with Lazarus. He is saying, let us go, my fellow disciples, with Jesus, despite the fact that Jesus is going back to Judea, back to Bethany, back to the place where the Jews had threatened to arrest him and stone him, so that we, as a group of disciples, may die with Jesus. This is interesting. It tells us a little bit about the devotion of the disciples, that rather than being without their friend Jesus, they would rather die with him. That says something really positive. It also says something pretty negative about how unconvinced they were about Jesus' confidence that he could kind of foretell what was going to happen and that there was no real need to worry. To quote Chambers again, I may not understand what Jesus Christ says, but it is dangerous, therefore, to say that he was mistaken. Or, are you loyal to Jesus or loyal to your notion of him? Those questions lead us to a sermon that I call The Idea of Christ, or not just The Idea of Christ. I had an aunt who died several years ago. And one of the great gifts she left behind was her copy of Oswald Chambers' My Utmost for His Highest, including several years of her prayers and meditations noted by her highlighted section and writings in the margin and in the back of the book. This is one of two books that I got from her estate at the time of her death. The other was a book that was sort of the, uh, 
the Bible laid out chronologically. And I've referred to this chronological Bible before in talking about John's Gospel. That the first verse chronologically in the Bible is not Genesis. And it's noteworthy that so many Christians might make the mistake of thinking that it is. It's John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is millions of years, perhaps even more than millions of years, before we get anywhere near the book of Genesis. So these two great treasures, one of which I read cover to cover, the other one of which I kind of had as an interesting reference point, because I'm unlikely to read the Bible in that particular chronological form. Today, though, what I want to do, in addition to perhaps noting one more thing from that scripture reading, that it, John in the, in the Gospel of John tells us pretty clearly that the Mary, who cried her tears and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, was not Mary of Magdala. It was not Mary Magdalene. And anybody who implies that she was makes a huge scriptural mistake. They run head-to-head with any notion they may have of the Bible being inspired. Because John, in his particular inspiration, tells us it's a totally different Mary. But I don't want to focus on Mary and Martha, and I'm going to talk about the story of Lazarus without not really talking that much about Lazarus. I'm interested in the disciples and how they responded to Jesus. By referring to my utmost for his highest, what do we know? What about Jesus' disciples? Quoting yet again from Chambers. I may not understand what Jesus Christ says, but it is dangerous to say that therefore he was mistaken in what he said. And further, are you loyal to Jesus or loyal to your notion of him? I'll offer a hint that one of the biggest problems facing Christianity today are Christians who are not actually loyal to Jesus at all, but loyal only to their notion of him. When my kids were pretty young, they always wanted me to fix them eggs. I don't like to eat eggs, but I don't mind cooking them. And cook we did. Scrambled, hard-boiled, sunny-side up, with grilled toast, kind of bird's nest style, omelets, etc. Now, they eat eggs pretty well today, and why not? They're pretty much grown up. But back then, they wouldn't eat that much at all. My son in particular, he would ask for eggs, plead, specify exactly how he wanted them fixed, but then he wouldn't eat much. Finally, exasperated, I told him that he liked the idea of eating eggs a lot more than breakfast itself. Now, I don't want to compare my son to Judas Iscariot. It's actually the last thing I'd want to do. But what about Judas and his idea of Messiah? Judas was saying that if his Messiah wasn't going to lead a military rebellion, then Jesus couldn't be his Messiah at all. But who gets to decide what Messiah means? Judas or God? The created or the creator? In many ways, that example is too easy. It's too obvious. It's almost too old. We know that Judas liked his idea of Messiah more. The problem persists today, though. In the year or so before my aunt died, and long before I'd read this book by Oswald Chambers, I was sitting in a McDonald's restaurant after lunch. I was trying not to watch the kids eat a meal that didn't make them anywhere near as happy as the menu more than implied. Reading the Saturday paper, I saw a letter from a retired secondary school science teacher. Let's call him Thomas, just to give him a name. Thomas said he retired early from the school system rather than teach the theory of evolution. His big concern, not the theory itself, 
or the belief of some scientists that the universe was not created at all. No, his issue was time. His letter said that when he died and found himself outside Heaven's Gate, that he'd, quote, turn around and go the other way. If he found out that the six days of creation weren't exactly 24 hours each, not a single nanosecond more or less. Let's just kind of parenthetically note that anyone who understands even junior high school level science understands that days are not 24 hours long. That leap year gives us an impression that there are a few seconds that trickle into every single day where we just ignore them, tack them on every four years to sort of keep the calendars in balance. But let's just humor him and say that days, you know, from a human perspective, really are 24 hours long. His issue was that he was not even going to walk through the pearly gates if he found out that God's understanding of time was bigger than that, or different from that, if it wasn't exactly six 24-hour days, he was going to turn around and walk happily through the gates of hell instead. My immediate response was prayer. I prayed for Thomas, that God would forgive his sin. And I prayed that God would cloud the eyes of any non-Christian who read that letter to prevent them from being misled. Before I tell you why I reacted that way, let me confess something that most of you know already. When it comes to loving God with all my heart and soul and strength and mind, I have a bias toward the mind. We all wrestle with the balance between our relationship to God through our hearts and minds and actions. But, you know, for me, it was probably roughly 27 years ago that I responded to God's call for my actions. Not for the first time, but it was the first time that I truly gave him whatever strength I had to offer. Only more recently have I become more comfortable responding as fully as I am able to God's call for my heart. In many ways, though, he has always captured my mind. If only for that reason, one of my favorite books in Christian nonfiction is from Oz Guinness, a former different drummer. His book, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, When Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It. That small book is packed with hard truths and opinions that many church leaders need to hear. I want to share just two of them. And I confess right up front, for many in the church, these are not going to be easy concepts. But they're too important to ignore. First one, faith in faith. This concept is very much like Chambers' challenge that some people are loyal to their notion of Jesus rather than Jesus himself. In fact, Reading Chambers really helped me understand this concept, which Ganesh kind of took for granted when he compared true faith in God with faith in faith. You see examples of the difference when people place their trust in the political rather than the spiritual. Or in the case of worship, when the way we worship seems to become more important than whether we worship at all. Judas, for another example, placed his faith not in God, but in his own faith devoted toward his notion of a Messiah that turned out to be something totally different than what the Bible truly foretold. Judith had faith in his faith about a military Messiah, in other words. See, true faith in God leads us to truth, not to our own bias. The other concept I'd refer to as inverse relativism. Ganesh notes that the current evangelical movement understands the sin of taking what God has made absolute and turning it into something relative. We're all over that. We correctly criticize this, using the term relativism. Many Christians today, though, including Thomas, the retired science teacher, commit the exact same sin inversely. How? 
by taking something that God has left unspecified, open, or even relative, and presuming to make it absolute. Where did Thomas place his faith? In our Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth? Or in the Hebrew definition of the word day? Don't put a question mark where God has put a period. Okay, fine. But don't put a period where God has left a comma. I prayed that Saturday over the complimentary McDonald's copy of the Daily Newspaper. I prayed for Thomas that God would forgive his sin. He was making absolute what God had left relative. You see, God told Moses that he, not Moses or any other human, was Lord of all time, omnipresent, in addition to being all-powerful and all-knowing. King David shared that fact with us in Psalm 90, which the Apostle Peter cited in his second letter. The God who tells us that a day to him is like a thousand years or more has all authority to tell us anything he chooses about time. And I fully expect Thomas to eat every word of his letter to the editor, acknowledging as Job did that God is God, not us. I also prayed that Saturday, hoping no unbeliever God is calling to his flock would get distracted by the confusion we cause when we place our faith in faith. By stubbornly refusing to admit I don't know. Only God knows all the answers. Thomas may have done more harm than good. Why? Because he pretended to know some things that none of us fully understand. I wasn't angry with Thomas, this man I have never met. It was more disappointment than anything else. You see, Thomas's problem is very common, now, and it was in Jesus' day too. As struggling human disciples, there is a great deal about the Bible that we know and yet do not understand. What does it mean to know and yet not understand? Let me quote from the film A Fish Called Wanda, a risque British comedy. The main characters are thieves. One of them, not too bright, has been invited along as the muscle, and his companion is masterminding a major double cross. She intends to steal from her own band of thieves. During one line of dialogue, she calls the other guy an ape, to question his intelligence. He replies, Apes don't read philosophy. Yes, they do, Otto. They just don't understand it. How about us? Do we know more than we understand? I believe that describes me all too well. But let's give it a try. E equals MC squared. What does that mean? Do we know this formula? If I was standing in front of a group of people right now instead of a microphone, I'd ask for a show of hands, and I would expect to see quite a few. Because almost all of us know that E equals MC squared is Einstein. Correct. Ironically, at least for a topic that includes the problem of inverse relativism, this is a mathematical part of his theory of special relativity. So there's relativity all over the place, right? But if you were raising your hand to answer the question of whether you know E equals MC squared, if that's something you know, then the question is, keep your hands raised if you understand it if you're prepared to teach others, if you're confident that you get it and you wouldn't make a mistake, you wouldn't leave anything out, you can answer questions about it. Anybody? You know, at the time that I gave this message, I just flat out said, I'm hoping someone here can explain it fully and completely because I know I can't explain it fully and completely. Because you see, there's a difference. We all know things that we don't really understand. Well, science is one thing. And scripture is another, right? After all, I was speaking to a group of Christians. As disciples of Jesus, we understand a lot more about scripture than we do about other things. 
I don't buy it. I frankly doubt that we come to faith in Christ better off than those who followed his earthly ministry, who heard the words coming out of his mouth. Jesus, both before and after his death and resurrection, called those very disciples slow to understand. I'll use just one familiar example from Luke's Gospel in closing. I love the way this story is told in the movie The Miracle Maker, so I'll tell it that way. Through G-rated claymation or stop-motion animation, The Miracle Maker beautifully relates a complete gospel. It is so rare to see any film correctly and beautifully relate a complete gospel. The Miracle Maker is one. Not long before his arrest, Jesus visits two of the many people who had been following him from town to town. They weren't in the inner circle, those we call disciples, but they were part of the throng who followed Jesus into Jerusalem. Sitting near their campfire, they told Jesus that they were hearing rumors about him saying he would suffer and go away. They confessed that they were confused, and Jesus told them that he personally would explain everything to them, but he didn't have time that night. Later, we see these two men distraught over Jesus' death, walking down the road and mourning, among other things, the fact that they never saw him again. That conversation, in their minds, that Jesus promised, didn't happen. A stranger joins them and asks what they are discussing. They reply by asking him if he is the only one in Jerusalem who isn't aware of what happened to the man they thought was the Messiah, how he was killed on a cross, how the woman found the tomb empty, and so on, and so on. Dr. Ravi Zacharias makes a beautiful point when he relates this story. By implying that this stranger didn't know what had happened, the two men made an ironic mistake. They were speaking with the only person on earth who actually did understand what had just happened. So Jesus explains the scriptures to them and answers all the questions that they would have asked by the campfire, only they didn't recognize him. He even answered the questions they lacked the wisdom to ask. Now these two men already knew the prophecies. They were followers, faithful Jews. They didn't need to be introduced to Moses and the prophets. They knew all about the Hebrew scriptures, but they didn't understand them. One other thing is true about those men who met Jesus on the road. They didn't recognize Jesus until after they began to understand the scriptures. Knowing the words wasn't enough. Quoting chapter and verse wasn't enough. It required understanding. I believe they didn't recognize Jesus at all because their understanding was limited. Even though they had seen him in his earthly body... It was as if their vision of him was clouded, through a glass darkly, is the way Paul might have described it, as if they only had a police artist's sketch of Christ in their minds rather than a true picture, or, as Oswald Chambers warns us, they were clinging to their notion of Christ rather than to Jesus fully, completely, and personally. If and as you were led, please join me in prayer. Lord, we praise you for being who you are, far beyond our understanding. And we thank you for reaching out to us as a heavenly father who loves his children. Lord, as we teach our kids, you have taught us that you love us personally, that you carry our picture in your wallet, that you cherish us in spite of our missing baby teeth, silly haircuts, and clothes that seemed like a good idea when we got dressed for picture day. 
more than merely knowing this, Lord. Help us to understand. Touch our hearts in a way that only you can, so that we will understand that it is not the picture you claim as yours, but us. We confess that we carry a picture of you, too, but we all too often confuse our wallet-sized, two-dimensional image of you with you. Please find us on our road, Jesus, when we lose sight of who you are, and give us your understanding so that we may be found truly faithful, faithful to you. Amen. Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. The message that follows is vital to the future of you all. Greetings, fellow wanderers in the fourth dimension. I'm Emma Foster. And I'm Michael Mould. And we're the hosts of The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, Simpsons Syndicated's foray into all things Doctor Who. From the old... Hey, Doctor Who, what are you talking about? To the new... I'm the Doctor, I'm worse than everybody's aunt. From the good... We obey no one, we are the superior beings. To the bad... No, not the mind's pro. From the sublime... Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. To the ridiculous. My dreams of conquest. We'll be sharing our thoughts and feelings across the broad spectrum of the Hooniverse. You're serious, aren't you? About what I do, yes. Not necessarily the way I do it. That's the greatest show in the galaxy, part of the simply syndicated 21st century media network. Splendid fellows, all of you, all of you. So this material, which perhaps insufficiently drove home the real problem of Christians relying too much on the idea of Christ, or what Chambers called the the notion of Jesus, rather than Jesus himself. But I did my best. When called upon to present something for a lay speaker group to uh, at least pursue the idea of getting certification, I did take this particular message and cut it down to the appropriate size that they wanted. So rather than being ballpark 20 minutes the uh, sermon section of a worship service in a Protestant church, I needed it to be more like, you know, five or six minutes, seven at the most. I needed to to cut it down a lot. So I I removed the whole walk to Emmaus story at the very end, and I tightened up some of the examples, dropped references to the movie A Fish Called Wanda, and tried to get it to where I, I could be as succinct as possible. But the part that I did make sure I left in was the part referring to Thomas, in the Gospel of John, you know, asking outrageous questions about, you know, well, if, you know, if Jesus says we're going to go to Bethany, let's go with him and die with him because there's no possibility that he's right and that this trip to Bethany is going to glorify God. And comparing that to the science teacher who wrote a letter to the editor that I referred to also as Thomas to try to connect the dots between the two. And an interesting thing happened. It probably should have been a warning sign to me, but at the time I wasn't looking for warning signs. And it's funny thing about signs. When you're looking for them, you often find them, and when you're not, you often don't. So I shared that message, that truncated version, in front of a panel of three people. All of them laity, all of them themselves part of the lay speaking program, so successful certified lay speakers. And I did a reasonably good job of speaking. I didn't stumble over the words too much. I I got everything off the page, communicated the way I wanted it to be. And then you get the feedback. And the feedback was kind of twofold. One was your public speaking itself. Were you clear? Were you loud enough? Did you enunciate? Could you be understood? Did, were you dynamic? All those sort of things. And then the, the next part was about the content. You know, was the content, was it based on scripture? Did you stick with the scripture? So forth and so on. And 
two of the three panelists, the two men panelists, just coincidentally, uh, gave me very high ratings on both sides of their of their survey. And the female in the group gave me high ratings on the public speaking side, perhaps not as high as the other two, but still, you know, high. If it's a scale of one through five, I'll take a four any day of the week, right? But on the content piece, I got very low scores, scores that were on the unacceptable side of the scale, ones and twos, not fours and fives. And it didn't really matter because taken collectively, which I guess you use a three-person panel to sort of whittle out any bias, I did move through and was, you know, part of the program for a few years. I was successful in the endeavor, I guess would be the way I would word it. But I was still stuck for years, in fact, even perhaps to this day, on the answers from that one individual. Because you know what? I was quoting the Bible accurately. Oswald Chambers was quoting the Bible accurately, to the extent that his wife Gertrude transcribed his words accurately. Because most of the things that are in that devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, weren't written down by him. They were spoken aloud to groups and transcribed by his wife and shared after his death. So there really isn't any issue with the interpretation of John's gospel. In fact, I would frankly have a much bigger issue if I thought that was the problem. I mean, the gospel clearly has the disciples collectively saying, you know, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? Or later, when Thomas basically says, well, let us go also so that we may die with him. That's John's gospel. Again, if you have any sort of notion in your head as a conservative Christian that the Bible is the inspired holy word of God and that means that it's incapable of error, then... Quoting it accurately, well, it can't possibly get you a bad score, can it? But her issue was that no matter what David may have said in the Psalms, no matter what Peter may have said in his letters to the Church Universal, no matter what logic, common sense, reason, and science tell us, based on the information that we have gleaned over you know, centuries of research, literally what the, the ancient scientists called reading the mind of God, she was more beholden to her idea of time. In other words, I was giving this message to somebody who was trapped in the exact quagmire that Chambers was writing about. Her issue wasn't with me. If we'd really dove right into it and picked it apart, her problem was that she didn't really understand what John's Gospel was saying. That the message Jesus was giving in that passage about you know, Lazarus and going to raise Lazarus from the dead confused her. But let me go back to Chambers. I may not understand what Jesus Christ says, but it is dangerous to say that therefore he was mistaken in what he said. In some ways, I've ascribed over the years the scores that I got on that day from that particular person who was kind of grading the work of potential lay speakers. I just decided that what it meant was that she believed that because what I was saying was confusing that, the, that I must be wrong. But I was saying what the Bible says. And there's no way she would ever grant that the Bible must be wrong. It had to have been a very dark day for her in her experience of evaluating future lay speakers to serve in the United Methodist Church. Because it may have been one of the few times that somebody had actually, in this quick and easy five or six minute, show me what you'd do if you were giving a personal testimony, that somebody had actually challenged her personally. The Walk the Earth podcast, the other show on this feed on inappropriateconversations.org, is all about trying to find a church. And in part, it's trying to find a church where it might be okay for me to speak words as challenging as these. My theory is that it's always okay to read the Bible in church. <laughs> but I 
I learned a lesson that day in the lay speaking course that sometimes it's not always going to be okay, at least not with everybody, to share what the Bible actually says. I'm warming up for Inappropriate Conversations number 150, where my goal is to share extensively what the Bible says and how it informs my faith. We'll see how it goes as I prepare for that, probably a little bit later on in the fall. For now, though, it's enough for me to say that I believe I have found a church that at least is okay, or as okay as the church I stopped going to a year ago, with having people who are not the pastor stand up, share a word of scripture, talk about what it means, talk about what it means to them, perhaps even answer the question of what is the Holy Spirit doing in my life. That's a tremendous blessing. It's something that's been missing from my personal walk in the last 14 months, give or take. But it also reminds me a little bit about the responsibility that's inherent there. It would be so easy to read the passage about Lazarus and let everyone assume that disciples were mad at Jesus because Jesus didn't go straight back to Bethany and save Lazarus' life. But that is not what John 15 says happened. The only part of the Bible that tells us this particular story about the relationship between Jesus and the family of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, the only passage tells us a very different story, that the disciples didn't want Jesus to go back at all. Even if Lazarus was dying or or dead, they didn't want to go back because they were convinced that Jesus was mistaken in his judgment. And he was wrong when he talked about what God's purpose was, what would be glorifying to God. Because they were more, more attuned to their idea of Christ than they were to Christ himself. So let me close this inappropriate conversation with one perhaps somewhat cryptic thought. <clears throat> when we start talking about an individual, somebody whose job is to teach people how to do lay speaking, how to do pulpit fill, how to speak to small groups, can be conflicted about the difference between what the Bible actually says about time and her devotion to a very traditional, you know, New Earth creationist version of time. If you can get people that conflicted upon those concepts in this sort of, you know, setting, of course you can have trouble in the broader sort of church universal. And if a message given to church can't be used to quote scripture and offer edifying correction to those kinds of mistakes, then what are we doing in church at all? Is it a bless me club? Is it, um, you know, like sort of like a community center? Is it tell me all the, reinforce all the things that I already believe because I can't possibly allow myself to be challenged by something new and different? If one thing is true of those original disciples, they were consistently being challenged by stuff that was new and different. At first by Jesus of Nazareth, then by the resurrected Christ, then by the Holy Spirit. If that's a tradition we're unwilling to carry forward today, then we're in big trouble. And how in the world do we carry that tradition forward today when we must acknowledge that if an individual can be conflicted, how can we talk about an organization, a group of people, even a small group of people by its very nature, having any sort of Christian beliefs? I'm fuzzy on what that woman in the lay speaker course believed about the Bible and the scriptures. Therefore, I would have no chance understanding what all three of them collectively might think. And if I have no chance of understanding what they collectively might think, then how can any organization, how can any group of people deign to call itself Christian?
If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I've already mentioned the other ways you can interact with the show. Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, Stitcher. But the website at inappropriateconversations.org has show notes there and comments are enabled. Thanks for listening.